Welcome to the Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series, hosted by the Koch Center for Leadership and Ethics at Emporia State University. The Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series is designed to highlight the three institutions that must work together to support and defend a free civil society. Joining us today is Dr. Bob Subrick. He's an Associate Professor of Economics at James Madison University and has worked in the areas of economic development, economics of religion, political economy, and the history of economic thought. Today, he's here to tell us why both the left and right are wrong about income inequality. Picture that people will show. 
And it's, it's this kind of this mindless downloading of data, even though the BLS, best I can tell, has been screaming about this for decades. To say, do not just mindlessly download the data and then draw pictures. Right? Look at it because you're going to have to really think about how this change in definition, uh, basically the change was everyone over $100,000 or so in income was classified in the top, that was the highest the income group went. In 93, they switched it to a quarter of a million dollars. That right definition will generate more inequality even though it might not actually reflect much changing in the data. And if you live through 1992-93, it's not exactly a, a year of gangbuster growth. Right? We are coming out of a relatively mild recession, but it's, it's nothing that would justify the single largest year-to-year -year increase in the Gini coefficient in the post-war period. Right? It's an artifact of the way the data is created. Now, I just wanted to that highlight some of the issues that I'm going to talk about. Now here you may have heard of this gentleman, Thomas Piketty. He wrote this book called Capital in the 21st Century. It's 600 pages of capital theory, which is boring as beyond belief. Um, you really have to be a special person to want to read that kind of thing. Uh, yet it sold something like one and a half million copies. Uh, there's t-shirts that have this R greater than G on it, for example, which basically makes the case that the rate of return on capital will always exceed the growth rate of the economy, which is just another way of saying that the income of the rich will always outpace the growth of the income of the non-rich. And as a result, inequality will get higher and higher and higher. Uh, it's been subject to a lot of criticism, both empirical and uh, theoretical. But the fact that someone bought a 600-page book about uh, capital theory right, suggests that these people do care about this, and they are trying to understand. Now, you know, I, I'm an economist by training. Uh, I like to say I'm a recovering economist nowadays, but my training is what it is. Uh, and economists have tended to not really care much about discussing inequality. Uh, Derek didn't mention, but like 50% of my dissertation was on this question, was global, rising global inequality and trying to explain it. Um, and it was uh, difficult to like, you know, publish this stuff because economists were like, it's interesting, but we don't care, actually. Uh, and that's a normal statement from most economists about this. Like, so here's Bob Lucas. Uh, really, you know, the guru of modern macroeconomics won the Nobel Prize in 1995. Uh, he talks about this discussion of, of inequality as the most poisonous thing you could do. Uh, we shouldn't be talking about income inequality, but we should be talking about, about poverty and how the lives of real people are, not their relative status in a society or their relative incomes. Similarly, over at Harvard, Marty Feldstein, who used to be the president of the National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, he basically says, oh, you want to talk about income inequality. Uh, he refers to that as you're like a spiteful egalitarian. You're just envious of someone else's success. Right? We don't need to be talking about this stuff. Uh, and that's a normal way that lots of economists have approached this problem. I think they're wrong. Uh, I tend to agree with this gentleman here, also a Nobel laureate at Princeton, Angus Eaton, one in 2015. I both love inequality and I'm terrified of it. Right, there are good reasons, at least that's the case I'm going to try to make tonight, that income inequality should be rising. And these are things we shouldn't really care about, actually, at least from a policy point of view. But there are other reasons why you might be concerned about it, and that's where the terrified comes from. So not all inequalities are the same. Right? The sources are going to vary. Some, as I'll talk about, we don't really care about. I, I'm going to say anyway. Others, I'm going to say, yeah, this could be a real problem. And that's where we should focus in our attention. So. The questions I want to talk about for the next 40 minutes or so is, you know, one, what are the sources of rising income inequality? So I just picked two here that are popular. One, you know, if you're on the right, it's something that's about globalization. So something happened a few decades ago, we don't really know what, uh, but 
the global economy continued to change, and the demand for high-skilled workers went up, the demand for low-skilled workers not so much, and as a role, this is just really what's called driving income inequality. If that's the case, you're, kind of not, you're not terribly concerned about it. Um, you know, another possibility you'll talk about is this educational decisions that are out there. Um, you know, you make investments in different majors, and different majors have different payoffs. Right? If, that, if, if it's really just reflecting your preferences, why should we be that um, concerned about it? So I'm going to talk a little bit about sources of inequality and a bunch more after those, if there are just some examples. Um, the other one is what are the consequences? Right? Sometimes the two issues are conflated in the discussion. A uh, popular one nowadays is it undermines democracies, right? Something about oligarchs buying off the system, regulations, laws, things like that are being rewritten in their favor, and at the expense of, say, the common person, you know, someone in the bottom 50% or so of the distribution. You know, another position that people I know is they don't care. Right? Go back to the spiteful egalitarianism, or that it's poisonous to discuss these things. They go, yeah, income inequality is going up, but it doesn't really matter. My position here, I read this in an old book some time ago, um, right, test everything, retain what is good. And that would be my, what I'm going to do tonight, is talk about various hypotheses and do my best to assess whether they have any validity or not. Now when you get into these discussions, right, you have to really think about this a little bit more, because it's not really true that income inequality rises because the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. That's generally not how it happens. Really what happens is you have differential growth rates. So the richest income can be growing faster than the poorest income. So in the United States, for example, that's pretty much what's been happening. If you're the median worker, meaning like at the 50 percentile or so, your income has been growing for decades, it's just at a relatively low rate compared to those people in, say, the top 20 percent, top 10 percent, top 1 percent. But your income, you're actually better off. Like, I don't think anyone really wants to go back to like 1975. How would you live? I didn't, I, you know, I, just, you know, I didn't know anything back then, um, right, really wasn't in existence. Um, but I don't reckon it was very good to live. I'm pretty happy living in 2019. Right. Another possibility is the, that both groups' incomes are declining, but at different rates, and this too will generate a rise in inequality. Right. That, then, then we might be concerned. The income of the rich is declining at a, at, a, at a slower rate than that of the poor. And what we really want to do is like begin to sort through these scenarios and then start breaking it down and say, okay, what's really going on out there? Now, if you're on the right, uh, accounting issues are actually a big deal. And I know accounting is generally pretty boring. Uh, I avoided taking it as an undergraduate. I had to bargain successfully. I traded my statistics classes for accounting classes um, so I could get my economics degree. Now, what, what are the accounting issues? Well, when you see this data, you want to ask a few questions. Right, is this pre- or post-tax income? Because the series look a little bit different. Post-tax income means that there have been transfers that have taken place. So yeah, you might, not have learned, you might not have earned a lot of market income, as we call it, but you did get some transfers, so your life isn't as bad as the data would have suggested. Right? So that is one thing to consider. Also, the accounting issue, um, lots of what's happened over the past few decades are people take their income in many forms. Right? It's, always not it's not always cash. Rather, they might take it as increased health benefits, dental benefits, maybe an extra vacation day, Right, that stuff is not reported in the IRS data. And if you think that has any value, well, it should. And that would tell a slightly different story. That's hard to do. Also, a big deal is sometimes the data is reporting to households that have multiple income earners. They are being compared against individuals, basically. In other words, a household of one. 
That is a big deal to consider, especially when you think about like changes in marriage over the past, say, 50 years or so. Um, right? I mean, that's one of the things that happens is you had a household to say it was a married couple, both made $50,000, and one year counts as a, unit, a household unit of $100,000, they get divorced, the next year now there are two household units of $50,000. And household size has changed a lot since the 1960s. Again, you have to figure out what it is that they're using, and that's just really just reading the footnotes now, okay? Um, but the data is not the same in each of these scenarios. Also something that's a little discussed in the United States is there is this thing called leisure inequality. Uh, since the 1960s, there's been an enormous increase in leisure, which means not working. But it also means not like taking your kids to soccer, actually measuring real leisure. There are time use studies that we've been doing since 1965 in the United States. Uh, what we find is for about 90% of the income distribution, leisure time has gone up significantly. Meaning the bottom 90% actually. For the top 10%, they actually work more now. In other words, they have less leisure than they did in 1965. So if really part of this measured income inequality reflects people's preferences, again, why do I care? Right? Leisure is valuable. People love consuming leisure. Uh, it's not going to be captured in any monetary statistic. You can try, and people have, to measure this, but it's something to keep in mind when you're looking at the data. Now, something else from the right is human capital, education, whatever you want to call it. They'll tell a story something like this. Um, college graduates earn more than high school graduates. Presumably that's why most of you are here, um, because you know this is to be true. And it's a decent amount of money, a million, a million and a half dollars or something like that over the course of your working life. So it justifies the educational investment. You, you dig in a little more, you look at the data. Within college graduates, you know economics majors make more than literature majors. Right? Economics is always like what, in the top five or something like that. Uh, I think in the latest data, it's the highest paying major 10 years after graduation now. All right, so literature majors, not so much, right? You look within the faculty. Right? Look, generally speaking, physics professors are going to earn more than history professors. Right? Why is this stuff? Why does this happen? Well, you start looking down the list. What's harder to do? Which takes more time and effort? To master economics or read literature? I'm not saying literature isn't hard. Don't get me wrong. I took a fair number of those classes. Uh, at, Derek did say, I was, I was one of those five-year students, so I, I stuck around for a while. Uh, my first two years were a little rough. Um, but you can kind of see why. Right? When you look around at graduation day, the majors differ. And it largely this reflects the difficulty, the skills um, that you have to acquire. And when it's about this stuff, you, most people go, I, I understand, and it's not really a big deal. Maybe the literature professors are upset, not sure. Um, uh, but we've got to remember these decisions are not always uh, wealth creating. Uh, later on, I'm going to pick on lawyers a little bit um, because they're not necessarily creating wealth. Right? They may be protecting wealth or possibly redistributing it, but they're not creating wealth. Some are, but most are actually not doing that if you study what's going on with the market for lawyers. And so this is where I think people on the right need to be a little more cautious and say it's not just all educational decisions and preferences. Right? There's more going on to this story and not all majors are leading to the creation of wealth or anything like that. Another popular story that I mentioned there a few minutes ago is the impact of globalization. So, I don't know, sometime in the 1970s, I don't think we're really sure, something changed in the global economy. So if I remember right, it's like 1972 or 1973, you would have been indifferent between going to college or just you know, keeping your high school degree and then moving on to the labor force. The expected lifetime incomes were roughly the same in the early 1970s. And then it changes. 
what happens, we think, is the demand for high-skilled labor increases. Right? For some reason, people have the right skill sets, particularly skills that complement technology. Uh, they're going to earn a relatively high rate of, um, they're going to get a relatively high rate of return on their investment in education. And that's going to continue through the 1980s until the present. Right? Like I say, you know, the value of knowing how to use technology has increased. Most, lots of times, remember, technology is your friend. Uh, sometimes it's not. Uh, but if you know how to use technology, uh, life's pretty good in the modern economy. The problem with this, and this is, I'm like an issue of mea culpa here, is I thought this was true for a long time. But then, like a sucker, I like downloaded data and started reading more intensely on the topic. And I quickly found out, uh, it turns out it doesn't really have any empirical support in the United States. Uh, it, you know, lots of people thought it. Uh, for example, from the left, Paul Krugman, if you know who he is, who writes for the New York Times, also won a Nobel Prize for international trade, uh, he's actually said the same thing too. He thought it was true. He wrote papers 20 years ago saying this is what's really going on. But as he collected the data, really the industry-specific data, it just turned out it wasn't there. Now, you know, also another idea here from the right that I hear all the time is stop focusing in on inequality, talk about poverty. That was the Bob Lucas quote earlier in the presentation. You know, but to me that seems kind of strange on some level. Um, right, what matters is like having some minimal level of income rather than on relative income, than, than focusing on relative incomes. I get that part of the argument. Like it does matter that they have basic things, right? Food, shelter, clothes, stuff like that. Uh, and certainly, you know, uh, I don't compare myself with Bill Gates. I doubt anyone in the room goes, well, you're happy to do today. And then you compare yourself, right? That's not how real people act uh, or think. But they do compare themselves with others, like their neighbors. And I think that's one thing we have to keep in mind. Also, when I hear stories about, say, you know, I care about the people in the bottom quintile, decile, whatever it happens to be, it, it's very bizarre to me. Like, my brain can't figure it out. You pretty much pick an arbitrary number that you care about people, and you're indifferent to the people who are like one percentage point away. Um, I don't think people think like that um, at all. Uh, I think there, there's more going on and the rights being sort of callous on this point. Also, my real gripe, when, we, when they try to shift the attention from the inequalities, is they're shifting to something that's a bit more ahistorical. Uh, let's just ignore the past. Let's not talk about how these you know, inequalities were generated. So I pick one that they talk about in some of my classes. Is, you know, there is a persistent gap in the unemployment rates for whites and African Americans and it's been there for a long time. Yeah, it might be converging right now, maybe, I'm not sure. There's some suggestive evidence. Um, but you want to really dig into these details about this. Right? You can't ignore how the process that generated these inequalities in the first place. In other words, I don't think it's a good idea just to focus it here, what the data is now, and just ignore how, it got, how we got to this point. We want to dig into the processes. You know, another argument from the right is about income mobility. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of discussion about this for, for a long time, actually, uh, which was remarkable because we didn't have any data. Right? We didn't actually follow a person from like 18 to 65. Right? We didn't follow like father and son combinations in the data. It's almost always father and son because they're easier to track because their names, their last names don't change. So that's why the data tends to be father son. Uh, let's say not mother daughter. Um, but a few years ago, a guy up and running this big project, he was at Harvard, I think he's at Stanford now, Raj Chetty, got access to actual IRS data, and now we could say something. We could track a real person over time. And this is what he found. I know some of you in the back probably can't see it, um, 
But what you see is basically the red, you know, the farthest uh, bar there on the left is the bottom quintile. So it's saying that if you're born in the bottom quintile, uh, you're probably going to be in the bottom quintile later in life, 40%. Okay. And then I kind of ask myself, is that number too high or too low? Do we know what the right number is? Have you even thought about that question very much? Because obviously the numbers have to add up to 100. Right? That, that, that constraint is always binding. Um, you know, on the flip side of it, not talk so much. Right? Actually, let me go back for a second. Um, the, on the top quintile, if you were born in the top 20%, there's a like 40% chance you're going to be in the top 20% later in life. That's what we sometimes refer to as the affluence trap. Right? Everybody knows the poverty trap there in the bottom left. In the top right, there's something that we didn't think about. And that's what got me thinking about a lot of this stuff, actually. Is why, you know, if markets are work, are work like they're supposed to work, there should be a, they're really a great leveler. That you shouldn't have this persistent across generations, staying at the top. Uh, it's extremely unlikely. Yet, it seems to be persistent in the top 20%. Um, part of the, you know, this got me thinking more, is if you're moving up this distribution, um, through redistribution. There's my lawyer friends again. Right. Maybe they're, they're getting skills, they get paid lots of money. Part of what they do is protect their money and those of other rich people. Right. And that might help explain this, the persistence there at the top. And like I mentioned, you know, if there's an affluence trap, it's something I think we should discuss a little bit more. To try to understand not just the dynamics at the bottom part of the distribution, but the persistence at the top. Now here, me and, me and uh, you know, LeBron, we can drink the, the same Sprite, right? And so people on the right will point to this. They go, yeah, 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 income inequality's gone up, big deal. But really, it's real, when we talk about real goods that real people consume, there's not that much variation. Yeah, his house is bigger than mine and things like that. But on consumption goods, phones, is you know, my Pixel 2 that much different than a lot of you know, relatively affluent people? Other than the apps on it, probably not. Um, so they looked at this and say, okay, consumption inequality, that's really been converging. Uh, problem with that story, could mention the internet and stuff like that, um, is if you look at the data for the past 25, 35 years, not 45 years now, um, it's not actually true. Uh, it was probably true up until about 1980 that you had this convergence in consumption inequality, meaning there wasn't that much difference between the rich and the poor. But since about 1980, it's began to diverge again. So well, one thing to take away from that is uh, when you talk about these, the consumption inequality and income inequality, they don't track each other. So you can't just substitute the terms in, right? which is what a lot of people do. When you look at this data, this is from consumer expenditure surveys, uh, what you notice is if you're in the bottom 50%, you know, your cars per household only, only grew, I mean, it grew a decent one to 1.6, but it's much lower than the top part. Um, square footage, you know, that's a story you might have told if you talked about the housing crisis 10 years ago. Um, if you're in the bottom 50%, your houses actually didn't get, there were no big mansions for them, okay? They weren't buying these big houses, everything 2,400 square feet or something like that. Their house size barely changed over a relatively long period of time. Um, also, their consumption is not growing at that high of a rate. Right? In terms of the real stuff they're consuming, less than 2%, that's a pretty low number, actually. No, but I think this is another one when you think about more. Um, you know, this is... This is a real issue, I think, if you're someone who thinks of yourself on the right when you talk about consumption. But what you, you kind of forget, I think I'm going to come back to this later on. Um, this is a quote from Adam Smith, uh, who was writing about this in The Wealth of Nations back in 1776. If you read The Wealth of Nations, I think the best way to read it is it's a really sort of 
angrily written books defending the poor because uh, they've been harmed in various ways by various restrictions. Uh, and he constantly defends them. But he also recognizes that in this, if this quote here, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's basically a story about how people will make certain consumption decisions to hide their poverty. Right? He wrote about this also in his other book, The Theory of Warm Sentiment. Um, yeah, you're going to go outside here to choose, but you can imagine other scenarios. Uh, people generally don't flaunt their poverty. And what he's making the claim is that now they're going to make expenditures that they shouldn't, meaning they're not going to have savings to make investments. Uh, because it's some sort of status seeking that they are pursuing just like everyone else in society is. Uh, the deeper issue when you get in consumption is it's a relatively new term, uh, inconspicuous consumption. Uh, and this ties in, I think, to what I said about the top 20%. You know, they're relatively persistent. Well, what does the top 20% do that's so different um, from everyone else? This is, and part of what it is is their investments in kids. That's why I picked this picture. Um, and particularly educational investments. It's gone up by like 400%, like the, the money and time they spend in the past 20 years or so with educational investments with their kids. And it's virtually unchanged from all other parts of the distribution. So why do you take your kids to see this like, you know, starry night? Um, they're not going to appreciate it, are they? And you're just, you know, you're praying that they don't touch it. Um, but uh, what it is, is, is it, it's allowing them to enter a world and pick up some terminology and stuff. So later on in life, they'll be able to tell others they know little things. It could be superficial, but superficial statements will get you pretty far in life, it turns out. Uh, meaning, like, I might not understand what's going on in the picture, um, but I did see it once, and that provides an end, right? It's another way to think about networking, right? It's a way to signal you, you have access to what the key good, really, of the modern economy is, and it's information and knowledge. Right? And it's the able, being able to share that with others relatively cost-effectively. Yeah, I just, you know, uh, my parents took me to the museum. Right? Or they took me to the theater right? when I was 13 or 14 or something like that. Or we saw various Shakespeare plays. You can go down the list. Um, but what that is going to set up is when you're talking with people later in life, now you're going to have, it's going to, in other words, you're going to have uh, more ends with them than someone who's not exposed to the same things. And there's a really good book, I forget her name, I think she's at USC, where she really dug into a lot of data, um, and that's what she was shocked by, is that's where so much of the difference is taking place, and it's really the top 20%. It's not the top 1% the problem, it's really the top 20% if you're concerned about income inequality. Right? Because they're doing stuff like this, and they're going to do some other stuff here I'll tell you about shortly. So, just to summarize the, from the right, and then I'll talk about some you know, concerns I have with people on the left. Um, yeah, they, people on the right make good points. I do think you really have to think about hard. Um, the accounting issues are a big deal. Because you're often just talking past each other because you're using two different definitions of inequality. Right? And, and then you're not going to get anywhere, and we're not going to really solve any problems if you think they exist. Um, I think it's also important to remember, like, absolute poverty is something we should, keep, we should never forget about. Like homelessness, stuff like that. Um, mobility, we should be thinking about that. Now we have some data and maybe we get some sense of what's going on. Um, you know, basically we just don't know at this point. But I think people on the right are too quick to dismiss someone, to dismiss concerns. Like, income inequality has risen, okay? Uh, the, the, really the question is just the magnitudes. And that's why we argue about it with accounting. But when you run into people who sort of deny it for some reason, uh, I think they're just being dishonest. And we have to accept that it's risen, and we have to explain it. Um, also, right, we have to think about here, I just call it crony capitalism. These are these educational investments in, in careers that might not be generating any wealth. 
Uh, you know, I could pick on finance too, but you know, they're another possibility, at least in recent years. Certainly something's gone on in that market. Also, to just deny the importance of status and what I, what I call inconspicuous consumption, well, that, that also seems like it's going to distract, right? We need to focus in on this because this is real consumer behavior now and how it's going to manifest itself. Savings patterns, educational investments with children, that will affect how, you know, the persistence of income inequality or whether or not there's persistent income inequality at the top, okay? So that's on the right. On the left, right, here's a picture another that you may have seen. This is a popular one as well. It shows the, the percent, the 1% income share in the United States. And it tells a story you probably heard. It was high going up to say the uh, Great Depression, then it plummets, then there's a world war, and it keeps going down. And then it bottoms out around 1972, 1973, and then it begins climbing again. So you've seen that. Uh, and people look at this and they say, oh, this is what's wrong with America. We need like, to have some, we, we should be like a country that has declining income inequality. So I go into the Piketty data, and I'll, get, I'll find one for you. Uh, here's one. Data begins in 1910. You see a, a pretty much a downward decline up until the Second World War. It spikes because of the Second World War. That's because this is a mineral-based economy, and you need minerals to blow stuff up. Uh, and then after the war, it steadily declines until about 1990. And people go, yes, this is the country I want to live in. And then I say, no, you don't. Because it's South Africa during apartheid. Right? That's what happened with the income inequality data. Right? It's declining the whole time. And then, I finish off the series for you. Look what's happened since apartheid ended. It's gone up substantially. Right? That's not what anyone predicted in 1994 when Mandela became president. Uh, but it actually makes a lot of sense because if you think of the South African economy, roughly 90% of the population was being paid well below market wages. Right? That's what apartheid was about, suppression of African wages. Right? Once the suppression leaves, now you generate a big, a big distribution of wages in the economy. Right, that's what's going on. But my reason for bringing this up is just because inequality is going down doesn't mean it's necessarily a good thing. Right? It's not automatic. There's not, there is an ambiguous relationship going on. So I could tell similar stories. People say, let's be like Sweden. And I say, have you ever looked at the Swedish data? And of course they haven't. Um, this is the, uh, what is this, the GD? Oh, no, this is the top 1%. Here, it has been steadily rising since about 1980. This is pretty much true for every country we have data on, by the way, in Europe. Income inequality has been rising for 30 years or more. Right? It's not, the difference about the United States is we just happen to be first in terms of that turning point where it had been trending down for a while. And then, and like I said, if you measure the genius, 1967, you see income share data sometime in the early 1970s, and then it begins rising. England, if I remember right, is next. And then it's pretty much going to be every country. Uh, another version of this, here's the Gini coefficient. Here in Sweden, it's still, you know, it's lower than the United States, but it has gone up a lot actually since 1980. All right, so let's keep that in mind as well. Um, so, which suggests there's actually global, you know, there's some sort of global factors going on. I just don't know what they are. So, during question and answer, if you got any ideas, I'm happy to listen to them. Another story from the left. Here is this vanishing middle class. So you might have seen some picture like this back in 1971. 61% of Americans were middle class. Uh, but this is just dividing things by three, actually. Uh, in some sense, you know, number of households or whatever. And a right, percentage of adults in each tier, and it was only 14% at the top, and then you fast forward to 2015, and you're like, wow, 
Like the middle class has gotten a lot smaller, and yet there's a change in 11%. Yeah, it has been getting smaller. Um, but most of those people, look where they ended up. Right? They ended up in the higher group, right? 7% 7, 7 of them shift up to the upper class. So it's a bit ambiguous, I think, to interpret this as saying it's necessarily bad. Uh, one thing I'm going to suggest is it might be bad because really what it's leading is, is more polarization. Right? So you have a bunch of people who are, uh, you have a growing upper class, a growing lower class, and the hollowing out is taking place in the middle class. And it, it, this will be an issue because it's going to be a lot harder to build sympathy across groups. Like if you, you know, especially if you end up building some little bubble and you're in the upper class and you don't know anybody who's poor, it's hard to be sympathetic to them. Right? And, and building coalitions for policy uh, is going to be a, a lot more um, difficult or hard, harder to do than it had been if you had a relatively large middle class. You know, another story that you hear on, from people on the left is about wealth. This is a popular story right now uh, about wealth inequality and the erosion of democracy. I just want to tackle the first part of this about wealth inequality. The honest answer is we don't know what's going on with wealth inequality in the United States. Those are the three major series that are out there. Notice only one of them shows rising inequality right, over the past few decades. So it's really, wealth is really hard to measure is the issue. Uh, one way people do it is it's easy if you're like a CEO of a company. Because what we do is we multiply the number of shares you own by the stock price. Right? That's a trivial calculation. But lots of people hold wealth in not so liquid forms, meaning say art or land or buildings and things like that. That's a lot harder to figure out what it's worth. They tend to get ignored in some of these studies because of the difficulty of it. Right? Just think about you know, if you ever had to deal with an estate, Right. You know, your parents pass away or something like that. It takes you know at least a year, right, at a minimum, to do those calculations to get a proper valuation. In most cases, it takes a lot longer than that. Um, you usually ask for an extension. Um, so keep that in mind. When someone says it's going up or down, really, you should say I, we don't really know yet. Right? We have not figured this out because of the difficulties in calculating these things. Right? It's really just best guesses. Now, the second part of that story. The erosion of democracy, you've heard about this, oligarchs of various kinds. Uh, it's a new Gilded Age, referencing back to like a borderline mythical history of the United States. Uh, but it has something to do with rich people buying off judges and stuff like that. And yeah, 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 you can find anecdotes that this happened back in, in the past. Um, but it turns out, you know, there's a recent review in a big political science journal about this uh, last year, that it, it's hard to actually find any examples of this happening that aren't just really anecdotes. Right. You know, there's the promise that it might be out there, and if any of you think about graduate school, there's a dissertation topic. It's just fine to act. It's really hard to find evidence that this is happening. You know, partially what it is is it's not the rich, you know, necessarily are trying to buy votes. What they do is they donate money to people they already agree with. Um, and much of political giving might be better understood as just consumption. Right. It makes you feel good. Like, why would you pay ten thousand dollars to have dinner at the White House? So you have a story to tell that you had dinner at the White House. Were you trying to influence policy? Probably not, right? It's like a meet and greet, right, with those events. Uh, so it could be just that is really going on. Uh, plus, if you look at the money in U.S. politics in the United States, it's actually just a pittance. We spend more on Halloween than we do on presidential elections, for example. And don't even get me started about how much we spend on pets. It's insane. It's like 10 times what we spend in presidential elections. Um, right, so it's really, really small. More of the puzzle is why is there such little money in politics? in the United States. 
Uh, and it, it could be, I'm not going to get into it, but there are some plausible explanations. Uh, it makes sense that we're not going to spend a lot. Now, a variation of this uh, story is something that, this is really popular now, uh, about raising tax rates, marginal tax rates anyway, on the rich. However defined. Um, but if you look at the money that they actually pay, it hasn't changed that much over time. If you don't know, like in the 1950s, the highest marginal tax rate was over 90%. It's going to be brought down during the Kennedy tax reforms. Uh, 94, I think, or 91%, something like that. Um, but what the rich actually pay is not anywhere near that number. Uh, one reason is why we've always had loopholes, for example. And that's just, a loophole is just a way to avoid paying tax, really. Because you know, tax avoidance is okay, tax evasion is bad. I make sure you understand the difference between the two, right? especially if you're counting the person. Um, tax avoidance is legal. Uh, all right, so you've got to keep this in mind, that you know, they're not going to pay that much. Also, income takes many forms. You know, it's, sometimes it's cash, like I said, it's health care benefits, it's an expense account, right? things that might not be taxable are not going to come up in terms of paying taxes. Another picture that I actually find kind of remarkable is even though the tax rate has changed a lot over the decades, um, and this goes back to what, 1950 or something like that, um, notice that on the X or Y axis, it's relatively narrow. The federal government basically collects the same amount as a percent of GDP every year. It bounces between 16 and 18%. Even though the tax code has gone from, what, 94% highest marginal tax rate down to, what, like 28 during Reagan, something like that, and now it's whatever it is, 42 or something like that, um, the, the actual amount collected is relatively constant. Now, it's not perfectly constant, like, this is because the axes are kind of compact here, um, but pretty much, you know, the, the long-run number is around 17% is what you can expect, uh, regardless of the tax policies. Um, another idea here from the left is you know, some, there was some sort of deregulation de that took place. Uh, and, and you can tell me stories about truckers and stuff like that, uh, airlines, for example. But if you actually look at the Federal Register, uh, which, you know, it's just, I'm just counting up pages, show me the deregulation, really. Right. Maybe during the Clinton administration, but generally it's been onward and upward. Uh, even today, it still continues to add pages, contrary to what you might have heard. Um, but it keeps going up and up. And you might look now and say, Bob, okay, fine. But finance, right? Clearly there was deregulation of finance. It's caused all these problems. And I say, maybe. So I go and find the finance data for regulations. And again, it's generally an upward trend. I mean, finance is one of the most regulated industries in the United States. It's like that pharmaceuticals are the two most uh, out there. I, I counted at one point between state level and federal level. I stopped counting when I found 120 agencies regulated finance across the U.S. states. Right? It's not remotely been regulated. There have been some few sort of major events, but if you dig into them, some of them were just like lifting the cap on interest rates for like savings accounts. I don't think that caused problems. Okay, that was a reform, and it is listed as a major deregulation, deregulation of interest rates, but in terms of affecting anything, it's highly unlikely um, that it did anything. Now, another story I hear from people on the left is people will just care about inequality, right? You hear stories about this stuff. Uh, my best guess is probably they don't actually care. Uh, it's hard to find in survey data that they do. Uh, so I, I, picked, I got some quotes here from two recent studies. Uh, one here is what they call lead Americans. These are people um, like at Yale. I think that's what one of the sets of the surveys were done. They, their commitment is to efficiency. Right? That's what they're concerned about. They want to do things sort of in the least cost way. Um, right? And that might be what motivates them. But interestingly, it's not inequality per se that matters. Here's another recent study. 
It's that they're bothered by, not inequality, but by unfairness. So the system is perceived to be unfair for some reason. Right, so that's what's generating inequality. That's what I was alluding to earlier. Some of these rises in inequality, people probably don't perceive as unfair. Like people choose majors for whatever reason. Um, I didn't mention, but you know, one of the big, well, a decent sized source of rising inequality in the United States is changes in what I call the marriage market. In other words, since about 1980, if you go to college and you decide to get married, you're probably going to marry somebody else who graduated from college. Right? And it's also continued up uh, the credential ladder. People, if you have master's degrees, probably are going to marry people, increasingly probable to marry someone with a master's degree. The same is true of PhDs. And if you think about that household measure of income inequality now, you, you can see now just changes in who you marry are going to generate upper numbers. But before 1980, there was a pretty good chance if you went to college, and you were probably male, 1980, you married a female who didn't go to college. That was an equalizing effect. But with the rise in female, you know, uh, females graduating from college, and the numbers have been up a lot over the decades, since about you know, 1980 or so, um, that is also going to change how we measure income in a body. Right? That's an underlying factor in this story that we often overlook. Right? That's probably not unfair in many people's eyes. I mean, I can't imagine, well, I could imagine, I suppose, but on your tax form, answering your question, does your you know, significant other have a college degree? Uh, okay, here's an additional tax. Right? That's probably not going to pass. Uh, right? But that's kind of what you think about in that scenario. You know, another popular story is about student debt. When people tell me this, I go, yeah, my friends in Sweden tell me otherwise. Uh, college is free in Sweden. This is a headline from courts. Um, but students still have a ton of debt. It's about $25,000. So it's a, it's a little bit less than the U.S. number, which is close to 30000 for students. Um, but, you know, Sweden's poor, too, so relatively speaking, it's about the same. How can that be if it's free? Because right? it's, you know, you're all at universities. You can figure this out. Um, right? Rising cost of tuition, right, uh, is part of it. But it's also the rising fees. Right, that nebulous category called student fees. Um, so you know, you think about country club like atmosphere at universities. Uh, one that comes to mind, I gave a talk like this a few years ago down at LSU when it was all in the news, because at LSU they were building a what they call a quote a leisure river, and this it spells out LSU. It's 536 feet long. It was it cost 85 million dollars to build. And it was financed by student fees. Right, that's who paid for it. So really what matters, and this is what the Swedes do, we don't charge anything for tuition, but you pay a lot in student fees. And from your point of view, really the number that should matter is the total bill. Don't mess around looking at, well, tuition did this, because right, it's easy to substitute those things out. Right? Uh, yeah, it sounds great. Tuition didn't increase, but yeah, your student fee went up by like 500%. Um, so you want to look at the total bill. But you know there is certainly rising debt that you have to consider. You know, this book here, Dream Orders by Richard Reeves, is pretty interesting. Um, I mean, he cl uh, clearly lays the blame on the top 20%, particularly with education, particularly with legacy admissions, because lots of places like Harvard, or Yale, or whatnot, you know, you're an alum, you give a little money, your your child is in, but that means someone is out, and who's likely to be out? Right, the person without the connections. Uh, so he advocates getting rid of this. Um, and another one, you know, another two I just quickly mentioned here, is internships. Right? People think they're really great, um, but they are. They, they, they bias the game in favor of those who can work for free. 
meaning the children of the affluent. Right? You look at college admissions offices, they're like, oh, you did all this volunteer work. What kind of 16-year-old does volunteer work? Right? It's like absurd, it doesn't lie, you should laugh. Um, right? No one does it, right? Unless you can afford to. You should have a job. Right? You're not volunteering. You should be like, you know, I've done polls when I was 16 years old. If I got hit in the head once by a backdoor knock, they feed into a hole in the ground. Um, that's why I see went to college, believe it or not. Uh, I was laying in that pit going, man, I gotta do something with my life. This is not going right. <laughs> and so here I am. Um, also, I just mentioned briefly, there are these 529 college plans, meaning parents can you know, squirrel money away for their kids. And you know, basically it's a, a cheap way you can freeze in tuition rates and things like that. And it, it sounds really great. The only people who use it are the top 20%. Right? When you look at it, then it's really largely the top 10% of the population who takes advantage of this tax, um, the tax code, to basically uh, make it even cheaper for them to send their kids to school. Now, bringing all this together, and it's really about opportunities and in institutions. Uh, you know, I'm almost out of time, so I have to go a little quicker. Um, things like I've already mentioned, the lawyers, right? A lot of this depends on educational, legal, and political institutions. I think back to President, former President Obama. Uh, and this often depends on lawyers. Like if I make any contribution to the debate, it's on this question here. Uh, you think about lawyers, there's kind of omnipresent in your lives uh, and in government policy. Right? Economists don't write trade policy, for example, as lawyers. I had a former student, she worked in uh, the Obama administration as uh, the trade rep's office, and she used to like, send me like, text messages, like, we're negotiating a treaty today, no economist at the table. Uh, so, I mean, I like her, but uh, she made her point, okay? <laughs> Uh, like you just go down the list and they're everywhere, okay? I just you know a couple more here. So now here's from the there's a, a every five years or so they survey the legal profession, and this is how it's, this is the billable hours. All right, who you know here's the hourly wage, twenty four dollars, like a tenth of what the billable hours is. Of course, I you know rhetorically want to ask who hires lawyers. Well, guess what? It's the top twenty percent who are likely credentials, meaning college educated people who make decent money, they're the ones who use lawyers, the rest of the people use like LegalZoom, which are relatively simple contracts, no fault of, you know, uh, you know, agreed upon divorce or a will or a standard will or something like that. Um, just give you an idea here, just two more slides. Um, so I, I got data from the American Bar Association about the lawyers per capita since 1960 or so. They're fought against that genie I showed you before. I corrected the genie for what I was complaining about at the beginning. Uh, that's a remarkable correlation for social science. Like usually you're like social science, you dance a little bit, right? If you get like a 0.4 correlation, uh, this is like 0.96. Uh, and it stays, if I control for all kinds of things. I actually had the formal statistical work behind all this. There's like 12 other variables I control for. It stays no matter what. Another way to say that is I also look at the top 1%, I can look at the top 10% as two. Uh, also a remarkably robust relationship as lawyers go up, which is really just my proxy for all these laws and stuff, right? Um, is highly correlated with this rising inequality since you know the 19, early 1970s at least. So just to sum up, um, one of my basic claims is these empirical things you've heard about, I could have gone into this more, you can ask about, um, they just don't have empirical support. They sound plausible, but the size of the effect is too small to really move any of the income and inequality data. Um, I think it's important that we identify the good and bad sources. Things that we're okay with, like I said, marriage or educational investment that you make. I don't think that should be punished in any way. Uh, but if it's bad sources, meaning you're rigging the system in your favor uh, at the expense of others, well, then I don't like it so much. 
Um, also, we need to you know, think about the consequences just a little more. Uh, this is, a, I think, an underappreciated aspect of this debate. Uh, there's assertions like it's bad for some reason, um, but the reasons tend to not be either empirically supported or make a whole lot of sense, actually. Uh, and in other words, identifying the mechanisms from rising inequality to what you think is harmful, I think we need to think that more, and I didn't talk about it much tonight. Now, on the right here, uh, yeah, I wish that, that those people and plenty of my friends uh, would recognize you know, that not all increases are good in this response to natural market forces, in other words. Uh, some of it is, like I said, the system is gained. Um, also, I wish they would understand relative status matters. Like, you do compare yourself against your friends, your neighbors, things like that. Uh, and that will affect the decisions you will make. You know, my friends on the left, you know, I do, I'm still at a university after all. Um, right, they, they, there needs to be more an explicit recognition that one, the institutions might be screwed up, and that's what's causing the problems. Right, it's not like some conspiracy or something like that. There's real deep underlying factors like the legal system. Uh, Similarly, I think they need to remember like education is not everywhere and always some sort of like magical panacea to reduce thing, reduce inequality. Right? It can be generating it, particularly if the way that people are getting into schools is a way to get the, you know, their kids in at the expense of someone else. So my last thing I want to mention here is that they really, um, if I you know, make you know, any good points, I think we really have to rethink policy, about educational policy, about regulatory reform, and have the focus more on how it impacts the lives of, say, the bottom. 20%, 10%, whatever you care about, right? We can figure that out collectively, um, but we should be refocusing our attention rather than saying tax the rich more or something like that, which is probably not going to work. All right, well, thank you for coming out. Okay, uh, join me in thanking Dr. Silver. Thank you for listening to the Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series. To stay up to date on all the lectures in the series, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you prefer. For information on upcoming lectures and other events and activities hosted by the Koch Center for Leadership and Ethics at Emporia State University, follow us on Twitter at Koch Center or on Facebook at Koch Center ESU.